You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Stephen King. This program originally aired in 2011. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've been on tour for this book for a while, and it's really nice to be back in New England and feel like I'm back home. I live in Maine. Don't hate me for that. And I won't hate you for living in Vermont. In <laughs> I did that on purpose. I saw Bruce Springsteen do it the other night. He said to everybody, hey, it's great to be in Michigan. And he was actually in some other state. But uh, my brother lives in New Hampshire. My son lives in New Hampshire. Uh, he's here with my grandson tonight, which is very cool. Uh, I don't know if you're applauding them or because I live to see it, but, and uh, both. <laughs> oh, there's one in every crowd. I'm going to read a, a section that I've never read before. It's going to be a challenge because it's full of profanity, and I'm aware that there are a lot of high school kids in the audience who've never heard any profanity. <laughs> so I want to be very careful of their tender ears. And all I can say, as far as the profanity goes, is I'm really glad that I watched Battlestar Galactica because that thing, fracking, comes in really handy. <laughs> Usually when you do a reading, you proceed it by explaining what the book is about, but the title of the book is Under the Dome, and that's really what it's all about. I worked on it for about two years, showed it to my sister-in-law, and the manuscript was like this. She said, what's it about? And I said, it's about a town that's under a dome. She says, oh, like the Simpsons movie, and I go, <laughs> I'd never seen it. <clears throat> You can't hit all of them all the time. But. In any case, at this point, this town has been cut off by this invisible dome for a couple of, uh, a couple of days. And uh, Big Jim Rennie, who's tightening his grip on the town, has closed the local supermarket in hopes that he can provoke some sort of civil act of lawlessness, mob violence or something, so that... Uh, he can tighten down the law enforcement. And boy, he gets, he gets what he wants. It's in the first person. There are a lot of characters in here. And believe me, that doesn't matter because you've all been through small towns and all these people are from every small town that you've ever known and I've ever known. Um, in New England or anywhere in the United States or in the world, I suppose. So here we go. So let's see how this works. Before Officer Thibodeau can really study the crowd, Alden Dinsmore gets into his personal space. Alden looks haggard, seems to have lost 20 pounds since the death of his son. He's wearing a black mourning band on his left arm and seems dazed. Need to go in, son. My wife sent me to stock up on the canned. Alden doesn't say the canned what, probably the canned everything, or maybe he just got thinking about the empty bed upstairs, the one that will never be filled again, and the Foo Fighters poster that will never be looked at again, and the model airplane on the desk that will never be finished and clean forgot. Sorry, Mr. Dimsdale, Carter says, you can't do that. It's Dinsmore, Alden says in a dazed voice. He starts toward the doors. 
They are locked. No way he can get in, but Carter still gives the farmer a good hearty shove backward. For the first time, Carter has some sympathy for the teachers who used to send him to detention back in high school. It is irritating not to be minded. Also, it's hot and his shoulder aches in spite of the two Percocet his mom gave him. 75 degrees at 9 a.m. is rare in October, and the faded blue color of the sky says it will be hotter by noon, hotter still by 3 p.m. Alden stumbles backward into Gina Buffalino, and they both would have fallen if not for Petrus Searles, no lightweight she, steadying them. Alden doesn't look angry, only puzzled. My wife sent me for the can, he explains to Petra. A mutter comes from the gathering people. It's not an angry sound, not quite yet. They came for groceries, and the groceries are there, but the door is locked. Now a man has been shoved by a high school dropout who was a car mechanic last week. Gina is looking at Carter, Mel, and Frank Nalesevs with widening eyes. She points. Those are the guys that raped her, she tells her friend Harriet without lowering her voice. Those are the guys that raped Samantha Bushy. The smile disappears from Mel's face. The urge to laugh has left him. Shut up, he says. At the back of the crowd, Ricky and Randall Killian have arrived in a Chevrolet Canyon pick-em-up. Sam Verdreau is not far behind, walking, of course. Sam lost his license to drive for good in 07. Gina takes a step backward, staring at Mel with wide eyes. Beside her, Alden Dinsmore hulks like a farmer robot with a dead battery. You guys are supposed to be the police? Hello? That rape stuff was nothing but a whore lie, Frank says, and you better quit yelling about it before you get arrested for disturbing the peace. Frackin' right, Georgia says. She has moved a little closer to Carter. He ignores her. He is surveying the crowd, and that's what it is now. If 50 people make a crowd, then this is one. More coming, too. Carter wishes he had his gun. He doesn't like the hostility he's seeing. Velma Winter, who runs Brownies, arrives with Tommy and Willow Anderson. Velma is a big, burly woman who combs her hair like Bobby Darin and looks like she could be the warrior queen of Dyke Nation. But she, but she has buried two husbands, and the story you can hear at the bullshit table in Sweetbriar is that she screwed them both to death and is looking for number three at Dippers on Wednesdays. That's country karaoke night and draws an older crowd. Now she plants herself in front of Carter, hands on her meaty hips. Closed, huh? She says in a business-like voice. Let's see your paperwork. Carter is confused, and being confused makes him angry. Back off, I don't need no paperwork. The chief sent us down here. The selectman ordered it. It's going to be a food depot. Rationing? That what you mean? She snorts. Not in my town. She shoves between Mel and Frank and starts hammering on the door. Open up! Open up in there! Nobody home, Frank says. You might as well quit it. But Ernie Calvert hasn't left. He comes down the pasta flour and sugar aisle. Velma sees him and starts hammering louder. Open up, Ernie! Open up! Open up, voices from the crowd agree. Frank looks at Mel and nods. Together they grab Velma and muscle her 200 pounds away from the door. Georgia Rue has turned and is waving Ernie back. Ernie doesn't go. Numb thud just stands there. Open up, Velma Balls. Open up. Open up. 
Tommy and Willow join her. So does Bill Wicker, the postman. So does Lissa Jameson, her face shining. All her life, she has hoped to be part of a spontaneous demonstration. <laughs> and here's her chance. She raises a clenched fist and begins to shake it in time. Two small shakes on open and a big one on up. Others imitate her. Open up becomes open up, open up, open up. Now they are all shaking their fists in that two plus one rhythm. Maybe 70 people, maybe 80, and more arriving all the time. The thin blue line in front of the market looks thinner than ever. The four younger cops look toward Freddie Denton for ideas, but Freddie has no ideas. He does, however, have a gun. You better fire it into the air pretty soon, Baldy Carter thinks, or these people are going to run us down. Two more cops, Roop Libby and Toby Whalen, drive down Main Street from the PD, where they've been drinking coffee and watching CNN. They blow past Julia Shumway, who's jogging along with a camera slung over her shoulder. Jackie Weddington and Henry Morrison also start toward the supermarket, but then the walkie-talkie on Henry's belt crackles. It's Chief Randolph saying Henry and Jackie should hold their station at the gas and grocery. But we hear, Henry begins, those are your orders, Randolph says, not adding that they are orders he is just passing on from Jim Rennie. Open up, open up, open up the crowd shaking fisted power salutes in the warm air. Still scared, but excited, too, getting into it. The chef would have looked at them and seen a bunch of Tyro tweakers needing only a Grateful Dead tune on the soundtrack to make the picture complete. The Killian boys and Sam Verdreau are working their way through the crowd. They chant, not as protective coloration, but because that crowd molting into mob vibe is just too strong to resist. They don't bother shaking their fists. They have work to do. No one pays them any particular mind. Later, only a few people will remember seeing them at all. Nurse Ginny Tomlinson is also working her way through the crowd. She has come to tell the girls they are needed at Kathy Russell Hospital. There are new patients, one a serious case. That would be Wanda Crumley from Eastchester. Girls, she said, we need you at the hospital. They're the ones, Mrs. Tomlinson, Gina shouts. She has to shout to be heard over the chanting crowd. She's pointing at the cops and beginning to cry, partly from fear, from tiredness, mostly from outrage. Those are the ones that raped her. This time, Ginny looks beyond the uniforms and realizes Gina's right. Ginny Tomlinson isn't afflicted with Piper and Libby's admittedly vile temper, but she has a temper and there's an aggravating factor at work here. Unlike Piper, Ginny saw the bushy girl with her pants off, saw what they had done, huge bruises on her thighs that couldn't be seen until the blood was washed off. Ginny forgets about the girls being needed at the hospital. She forgets about getting them out of a dangerous and volatile situation. She even forgets about Wanda Crumley's heart attack. She strides forward, elbowing someone out of her way. It happens to be Bruce Yarnley, the cashier cum bag boy, who is shaking his fist like everyone else, and approaches Mel and Frank. They are both studying the ever more hostile crowd, and they don't see her coming. Ginny raises both hands, looking for a moment like the bad guy surrendering to the sheriff in a western. Then she brings both hands down and slaps both men at the same time. You 
bastards, she shouts. How could you? How could you be so cowardly, so cat dirt mean? You'll go to jail for this, all of you. Mel doesn't think, just reacts. He punches her in the center of her face, breaking her glasses and her nose. She goes stumbling backwards, bleeding, crying out. Her old-fashioned RN cap, shocked free of the bobby pins holding it, tumbles from her head. Bruce Yardley, the young cashier, tries to grab her and misses. Ginny hits a line of shopping carts. They go rolling like a little train. She drops to her hands and knees, crying in pain and shock. Bright drops of blood from her nose, not just broken, but shattered, begin falling on the big RK of no parking zone. The crowd goes temporarily silent, shocked, as Gina and Harriet rush to where Ginny crouches. Then, Lisa Jameson's voice, a pure and perfect soprano, you pig bastards. That's when the chunk of rock flies. The first rock thrower may never be identified. It may be the only crime sloppy Sam Verdreau ever got away with. One thing Junior had said as he dropped sloppy Sam off. It wasn't Junior's one more thing, but Junior did not tell Sam this any more than Chief Randolph had told Weddington and Morrison who had ordered them to stay on station. Wouldn't have been politic. Aim for the chick. That was Junior's final word to Sloppy Sam before leaving him. She deserves it, so don't miss. As Gina and Harriet, in their white uniforms, kneel beside the sobbing, bleeding RN on her hands and knees, and while everyone else's attention is there too, Sam winds up just as he did on that long ago day in 1970 when the team won the state championship and let's fly. He throws his first strike in over 40 years. In more ways than one, the 20-ounce chunk of quart-shot granite strikes Georgia Rue dead in the mouth, shattering her jaw in five places and all but four of her teeth. She goes reeling back against the plate glass window, her jaw sagging grotesquely almost to her chest, her yawning mouth pouring blood. An instant later, two more rocks fly, one from Ricky Killian, one from Randall, Ricky's connects with the back of Bill Allnut's head and knocks the janitor to the pavement, not far from Jenny Tomlinson. Shoot, Ricky thinks. I was supposed to hit a fracking cop. Not only were those his orders, it's sort of what he always wanted to do. Randall's aim is better. He nails Mel Searle square in the forehead. Mel goes down like a bag of mail. There is a pause, a moment of indrawn breath. Think of a car teetering on two wheels, deciding whether or not to go over. See Rose Twitchell looking around, bewildered and frightened, not sure what's happening, let alone what to do about it. See Anson Wheeler put his arm around her waist. Listen to Georgia Rue howl through her hanging mouth, her cries weirdly like the sound the wind makes slipping across the wax string of a tin can moose blower. Blood pours over her lacerated tongue as she hollers. See the reinforcements, Toby Whalen and Rupert Libby. He's Piper's cousin, though she sure don't brag on the connection. They are first to arrive on the scene. They survey it and then hang back. Next comes Linda Everett. She's on foot with another part-time cop, Marty Arsenal, puffing along in her wake. She starts to push through the crowd, but Marty, who didn't even put on his uniform this morning, grabs her by the shoulder. Linda almost breaks away from him, and then she thinks of her little daughters. 
Ashamed of her cowardice, she allows Marty to lead her over to where Roop and Toby are watching developments. Of these four, only Roop is wearing a gun this morning. And would he shoot? Balls, he would. He can see his own wife in that crowd, holding hands with her mother. The mother-in-law, Roop, wouldn't mind shooting. <laughs> see Julia arrive just behind Linda and Marty, gasping for breath, but already grabbing her camera, dropping the lens cap in her hurry to start shooting. See Frank DeLesseps kneel down beside Mel, just in time to avoid another rock, which whizzes over his head and shatters a hole in one of the supermarket doors. Then, then someone yells, who will never be known? Not even the sex of the shouter will ever be agreed on. Get them! And someone else bellows, groceries! And the riot is on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Stephen King, what a pleasure on an almost full moon night to be talking with you. Me too, thanks. As it would be any night. We have loads and loads of questions from the audience, so I'm going to try and get to as many as possible. But first, the idea for Under the Dome had been percolating for some time with you. You told a, a group at the Library of Congress last year that you'd been working on it for about 25 years, but you were too young. You just had to put it down, walk away from it. What, what made you pick it back up <laughs> in 2007? I was on a long trip. I was headed for Australia, and anybody who's ever gone to Australia knows that that's... Uh, a three full feature movie ride. And uh, <laughs> you're just there, you can't really do anything except think about the fact that you're 38,000 feet in the air and if the plane goes down, you will probably die. And so you try to think of other things. And my mind went back to under the dome. And here's the thing. I had this idea around 1976 or 1977 and it started with an image of these people who were starving and uh, out of resources, choking on their own pollution, giving a press conference, and the people on the other side were in great shape, and this was going out to the whole world, and uh, the, the world was seeing this town die uh, in their own effluent on TV um, because there was a barrier, but you couldn't actually see the barrier. And, uh, I thought it was a terrific idea, and I tried to do it. I got about 75 pages in. was kind of daunted by the cast of characters, but even more so by all the technological questions and meteorological questions. Tried again about two years later um, while I was on the set of a movie called Creepshow mm -hmm. that I wrote, and uh, that didn't work either. It was called The Cannibals. You know where that one was going. And... <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Good gravy, good meat, good God, let's eat. So, but the thing is, people will say to me sometimes, do you keep an idea notebook? And I don't, because I think a notebook is a way to immortalize really terrible ideas. And uh, if you leave them alone, they go away on their own, but the good ones stay, and this one stay. Well, at the same time, you began it so long ago, but there's so many things that feel right on the money right now. Under the dome, we have trapped Big Jim Rennie. He's an evangelical car mm -hmm. salesman who hates the feds. 
Yep. And hates our president with that terrorist middle name that he's got. He's he loves Jesus. Can you give well, me hallelujah? <laughs> Can we get a witness? And you have an Iraqi war veteran who's just haunted by memories of torture. You've mm -hmm. got a pimply kid who wants to broadcast this all to the world on the World Wide Web. Does it ever freak you out, Stephen King, that you have such a strange attachment to what people want to hear? No, I mean, I, I just tell stories that, that turn my dials. That I like the visual imagery of this, and I had fun because I, I grew up in a small town, uh, lived in small towns, most of my life, feel comfortable there. I sound like a fracking John Mellencamp song. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I, after, I, I think I started this, Bush had been in office like six years, Bush and Cheney, and I was fascinated by the dynamic of those two men because everybody saw a Bush as a kind of puppet on Dick Cheney's lap. Everybody saw Bush as kind of a nice, not bright, but nice guy. And Cheney is this sort of villain, you know, I always think, da, 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 Darth Vader kind of thing. So I thought I really would like to put that dynamic to work because the whole thing, the idea of putting a town under the dome, we're all under the dome. We live on a little blue planet it's surrounded by a thin skin of atmosphere. We've got satellites that have gone into outer space uh, beeping away at the universe. We've got the Hubble telescope. And so far as we know, we're the only intelligent life in the area. There may be other intelligent life, but if I were them, I'd steer clear of us. You know, We are the H1N1 of the universe. Uh, but. What we've got is we've got an exploding population, we've got shrinking resources, we've got an environment that's increasingly foul. And I thought I can put all these things under the dome and I wanted to use for my leaders, I kind of wanted to use that Bush-Cheney dynamic, not because I wanted to write a political allegory, God forbid, I just want to write stories. But I loved that sort of sense that I, I took through the Bush administration that you could love their policies if you were on the far right, or you could hate their policies if you were on the far left. But the thing nobody seemed to argue about was, was that they were terribly inept at what they were doing. And I really wanted to use that in the book. So it is set in Chester's Mill. This is a manufacturing town in Maine. It's one of those little American towns that Sarah Palin might have described as the real America. Gosh darn it, yeah. Hockey and, moms. And people there talk about playing for the team. They, they sort of consider themselves in a universe unto themselves until they are actually in a universe unto themselves and feel what it's like to be separated. In the book you say, small towns have small imaginations. But what is it about towns like Castle Rock or Chester's Mill that are so fertile for you? Well, I, I don't think small towns do have small Im imaginations. I think that there are people who a lot of times have exaggerated conventions, and as a result, they keep a lot of secrets, but that's fertile ground for a novelist. Um, I write about small towns because it's, it's what, I, what I know. Uh, I, I remember reading somewhere in some book on fiction that you can write about a place where you know where the roads go, and uh, that's 
why I write about Maine as much as I do, because I know where the roads go. I've written about other places. Um, I've written a couple of books that were at least partially set in Colorado, and uh, The Stand, the which was friggin' everywhere. So, <laughs> and then there's Arkansas. And then there's the Dark Tower books, which are set in Midworld, and that's some of the. <laughs> it's like I feel like saying somebody's gonna yell, "Play Freebird." <laughs> <laughs> I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Word of Mouth from NHPR. Today, my conversation with Stephen King from Writers on a New England Stage. In addition to on writing, King has written several books, The Shining, The Dark Half, Bag of Bones, and Misery, about writers frustrated by writing, struggling for literary credibility, or writing under compulsion. Another writer, James Parker, suggests put them together and you have a wonderful diagram of King's imaginative process. Well, of course, many of those books have been made into films by noted directors. Brian De Palma adapted King's first novel, Carrie. Stanley Kubrick directed The Shining. We'll hear King's opinion of that film in just a moment. They're all going to laugh at you! They're all going to laugh at you! Other critical favorites are the Shawshank Redemption. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living, or get busy dying. And Misery, starring James Caan and Kathy Bates, who won an Oscar in the role of an obsessive fan. There's nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'll take good care of you. I'm your number one fan. Stephen King himself has become an American icon in his own right and a common reference for pop culture parodies on programs like The Simpsons and Family Guy. What do you think, Marge? All I need is a title. I was thinking along the lines of no TV and no beer make Homer something something. Go crazy? Don't mind if I do! Oh my God, Stephen King! This would make a neat story. Done. He was also parodied on Saturday Night Live. The skit depicted the prolific novelist furiously typing away while talking, eating a sandwich, and drinking. King played with his fame and reputation in the late 1970s and early 80s when he penned a handful of short novels under the pseudonym Richard Bachman, including Rage, The Running Man, and Thinner. He did so largely to measure for himself whether or not he could replicate his own success and allay at least part of the notion inside of his head that his popularity might all just be an accident of fate. But these books also sold well until a bookstore clerk discovered the ruse, and King then declared Bachman to be dead. We now return to my conversation with King on stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for the Writers on a New England Stage series. We took several questions from the audience, which I read off of cards, including this one. Having grown up in rural Maine, King's writing and characters capture the feeling of a certain aspect of Maine life. The question, what impact did being a native of Maine have on your development as a writer and the characters that you create? 
It's so pervasive that I can't even begin to answer the question because it's in everything. Um, it feels a little bit like scuba diving because I would never felt entirely at home in the environment, but having lived in Maine my whole life, one thing that happens is you get a, an ear that's tuned for the accent and you can let go a lot of the artificial uh, things that people write when they're from away, the, the New England accent. You know what it is, you hear it in your head, so it's natural. You wrote in the book on writing that, I was built with the love of the night and the unquiet coffin. Mm -hmm. When or how did you first recognize that love? I think, you know, my father left my mother when I was two years old, but he left a bunch of stuff behind in, uh, in the attic. And uh, my brother and I went in there and uh, we would look over the stuff that he had brought back from other parts of his existence. He was in the Merchant Marine and there were China dolls and there were postcards, there were pressed flowers, there were scrapbooks. And there was also a box of paperback books. And uh, my brother grabbed a lot of the science fiction and I found some uh, stories uh, by H.P. Lovecraft, mm -hmm. a book called The Lurker in the Tomb. It was an old Avon paperback reprint and it had this green boogery thing coming out of a grave in the ground and I thought, that's for me. <laughs> because, you know, here's the thing, all right? At some point in every interview that gets done on TV, because they're the real stoops of the industry, I mean, somebody will say in a deceptively casual voice, so, what were you like as a kid? <laughs> the implication is, what screwed you up <laughs> to the point where you want to do this? You know, they're looking for that Freudian moment, you know, where you saw some awful thing, but I never did. I used to play baseball and hang out with my friends, and, uh, you know, I, I was never ritually murdered cats or nailed flies to... You, you get certain equipment that's built in, and... It's, I, I used to say it's like having a compass needle, and when it gets near whatever is your thing, it swings as if to true north. Mm. And that's true of all of us, whether it's uh, guitar music or whether it's uh, painting or something. You find what you're good at, and that's, that's what blisses you out. Well, you were stuck in bed for some time as a kid with what you call striped throat. Striped throat, stripe yeah. Throat. And your mother said to you, instead of transcribing all these other books, write one of your own. Mm -hmm. And you described an on-writing feeling like all this possibility came to you. Yeah. Do you still feel like that? Are there infinite possibilities in writing for you? Totally. The only thing, the only limiting factor is time. Um, I could, I have a blast doing what I do. I mean, this is so good. Uh, people like me, people who write stories for a living, uh, people who paint, people who play music, people who act. We're the most fortunate people. I'm sure that we have our flaws and we have our psychological wrinkles and things that are, are not so great. You know, Todd Rundgren, the rock guy, once did an album called The Ever-Popular Tortured Artist Effect. So, you know, we do have sort of a reputation for that, but I think it's like protective coloration because it's like society says to you, you are our designated children. You go out on the playground, you play all the time, all you want, 
and we will watch you play and pay you so that we can watch you play. I mean, is that sick or what? It's so great. So yeah, the, the short answer is I have a terrific time doing what I do. And the only obvious follow-on question comes from Tom and Jenna. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? That is such a loaded question. I guess I would like to be able to, I don't know. I wanted to say I'd like to be able to fly. But what if you lost that power at 38,000 feet? <laughs> like if kryptonite came or something like that, then you would be totally screwed. But if I say invisibility, immediately somebody thinks about, well, he's going to be hanging out in the girls' locker room. <laughs> but as a writer, invisibility would be a great thing to have. Mm. You know, you could follow people's conversations. We're born snoops. X-ray vision would be cool. Read that. <laughs> You've got a big audience. <laughs> but you can still get that in the back of the comic books, I think. Those glasses. Flame on. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, so more questions. Um, playing out in the playground is one thing, but yep. there is also, you know, a lot of kids take this stuff very seriously. Mm -hmm. A lot of people take it very seriously. There are church groups, there are youth groups that say your books seduce kids into violence. And mm -hmm. a couple mm -hmm. cases, in 1997, a 14-year-old boy killed three young women, injured five, and a copy of Rage, although it was by Richard Bachman, let's yep. note, uh, was in his locker. Mark David Chapman uh, read your books. In fact, there's a book out called Stephen King Killed John Lennon. Have you seen that? <laughs> Well, it's probably by this guy, Stephen Lightfoot, yeah, that's who exactly also it. believes that the uh, USDA killed River Phoenix because he was a vegetarian, so, <laughs> no. Okay. I don't want to say crazy, but that's it. No, I'm aware that uh, we, live, we live in a violent society, and uh, I, my view is that for most people, fiction of any kind is catharsis rather than an accelerant. That that is that mm -hmm. people who read things uh, are mostly able to use that imaginative facility to uh, get past violent things in their own lives the same way that people have a tendency to use horror fiction where the boogie monsters are, are make-believe to deal with real problems in their real life, we have a tendency to see analogs between make-believe terrors and real ones. My view, uh, and of course, with the, in the case of Rage, the minute I saw that, I pulled that book right. from publication because I didn't want to be associated with anything like that. But you know what? In this world of ours, if you think of the consequences of everything that could happen, you know, you're afraid to make a move. And I see writing as an essentially courageous act and imagination as a, as a way to speak out against all the forces of darkness. And nobody's going to shut me up. Simple as that. Well, there's another kind of power that you have over readers. Uh, if we look at the 1987 novel Misery, which mm -hmm. is probably something that comes up a lot for you. Annie Wilkes, mm -hmm. Paul Sheldon's number one fan. This is another thing yeah. that's become a part of our lexicon because of uh, Stephen <laughs> King, number one fan in Red Rum. 
Not of course. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she captured him. You didn't do that right. <laughs> red rum, red rum, red rum. You know, I tried from the master. What can I say? So, so you know, it's you just part of my repertoire. <laughs> you, uh, I carry you, that goddamn Kubrick film on my back like a safe. I never really liked it that I much. I know you never liked that film. Okay. That's See, what we thing, heard. The thing about that is the book is about this guy who's trying to get sane and winds up at this hotel that drives him crazy. And in the movie, the first time you see Jack Nicholson, you know he's insane. <laughs> There's nowhere to go from there. So, but anyway, yes, misery. Okay, wait, uh, you know, let me, just, let me just jump off that for a second because we have quite a few questions about movies. Mm -hmm. We just heard you didn't like... Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. You actually remade, you worked on a remake of another one mm -hmm. many years later. Two related questions. What is your favorite movie ad adaptation? Of your well, books? I like, I, the, I'm easy. I'm easy to please. As a fa my mother used to say, Stephen, if you were a girl, you'd always be pregnant. <laughs> and uh, this, <laughs> there's a certain amount of truth in that. For the scary ones, I love Cujo. I think Cujo is a terrific mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. And that D, D. Wallace, in a fair world, D, D. Wallace would have been nominated for an Academy Award. Um, I like uh, Stand By Me. I think that Rob yeah. Reiner did a terrific job with that. Um, and uh, I, gotta, I gotta tell you a story while we're on this. And I, I'm watching the clock, not because I wanna leave, but because I don't wanna run my, my mouth runs away. My grandfather used to say, Steve, you, your mouth falls open and all your guts come out. <laughs> so, but I was in Florida and I was in the supermarket one day and uh, the deal that my wife and I have is she does the big shopping on Friday and if there's something that needs in the middle of the week, I go. I push my cart around the corner and there's this lady it is Florida, the lady's about 116 years old. But her eyes are sharp, she looks at me and she says, I know who you are. You're Stephen King, you write those scary things. Well, you can write whatever you want, but I want you to know I don't respect what you do. I like movies that are uplifting. I th like things like that Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> this, is, this is a true story. So I said, I wrote that, and she said, no you didn't. That's what happens when you're old, I guess. You get your way. So, but I, I like that one. I like The Green Mile and, and Misery. This, is, one, this person loves The Dead Zone. Pardon me? Dead Zone's a good, good one, too. Good one. Yeah. And a related question. Um, how come you haven't done any acting lately? Well, because I suck at it. <laughs> I, li I like to act, and I have actually had some offers to do things. I think that, generally speaking, being from Maine, this is another thing you'll have to edit from the radio, but I've been typecast as the country <laughs> Since I did no. Jordy Verrill and Creepshow, I was the guy who turned into a weed in Creepshow, and since then I get a lot of parts. God <laughs> what the hell is that thing? You know. so. <laughs> you can see I do a good job at it, so I get offers. Well, loads of people want to know when the Dark Tower series is going to be made into film. I really don't know. J.J. Abrams was going to do it, yeah. and uh, he's kind of pulled out of it, and uh, there are some other things that might happen. 
probably will eventually, and uh, all things come to those who wait. I, I have an idea for a, a, a novel that's set in Midworld that I want to write uh, that comes between two of the uh, outstanding dark, the, the published Dark Tower books. Mm -hmm. So I think about going back there a lot. That's a safe place for me to go. I like it. I mean, you guys are out there, you guys who, who are uh, Dark Tower fans, and I'm a Dark Tower fan. Uh, I love that, that place. There are other people who read some of my books who don't have an idea what we're talking about, but that's okay. That's, that's what we do sometimes. That's how we roll. <laughs> well, I believe, at this count, 80 films have been made of your work, probably something more I like that. I have no clue. But you you But don't forget Children of the Corn 1 through 9. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I see. I'm waiting 89. for 89. The one I'm waiting for is Children of the Corn meet Leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> there could be a role in there for you. Yes. It's like even. that it's like that thing about which superpower would you have? If the Children of the Corn did meet Leprechaun, who would win? <laughs> We're going to have to leave that one for later. But you have, you sold more than 350 million books worldwide. One of the world's best-selling writers. And yet at one point you said you were the Big Mac and fries mm -hmm. of the literary world. Do you resent being labeled or having been labeled a writer for the masses rather than, you know, a great literary genius? No, I mean, what I... I've always said when it comes to reading, um, I love good writing, and I also love good stories. And the ideal situation is when good writing and good stories exist together. Uh, that's the perfect combination. Um, but I can read a story for story uh, because the words, to, to my mind, the story is what comes first. That's the major thing. I want people to be taken away and I want to be taken away myself when I read other people's stories. But I don't think there should be a barrier between popular fiction and literature. Um, uh, I was given an, an award, uh, uh, a National Book Award, uh, um, about I think seven or eight years ago and I mentioned a number of writers that were that had a lot of popular success that I thought were excellent writers that a lot of um, mainstream critics didn't read. And the woman who won the, the uh, award for best novel that year uh, said, uh, we don't need Stephen King to give us a reading list. And I thought, but you do. You need somebody to give you a reading list so that you can get a wider view of what's going on in American fiction and get rid of these artificial distinctions. I don't think that I, I don't think that either uh, um, literature or uh, popular fiction should be put in a ghetto, that one is a, a sort of country club literature for the mind, and the other one is lower class or middle class. Um, I think that we should all, you know, I'm an old hippie, I think, man, we should all live together. <laughs> well, you have been able to, let's say, shapeshift. From the, uh, from the perceived right to the masses into a very authoritative, prominent 
literary voice. I mean, a couple weeks ago you hmm. did a uh, cover review for the New York Times Book Review on right. a book Raymond about Raymond Carver. Carver. Mm -hmm. That's not something that Dean Koontz or Peter Straub have done. I mean, is that by design for you? Well, I was asked to review the, uh, the piece. Um, the, 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 there was a, an, a biography of Raymond Carver by Carol Sklenecka, and at the same time, coincidentally or not, was a mm, portable library of all Carver stories. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes think that uh, I get asked to review certain books at the New York Times because I'm the resident expert on drunk writers or drunk <laughs> rock musicians because I spent so many years, you know, drunk and stoned myself. And you have, especially in On Writing, written about your recovery from alcoholism. Um, did you have any fears that if you let go of the drink and the drugs, you'd lose the muse? No, I just wanted to drink. I was <laughs> It was kind of hard to quit that. I wasn't really thinking about the muse or writing or anything like that. I was thinking to myself, geez, this is going to be really tough. But it finally, it, it just had to happen. It was, it was that or everything. was. I was going to lose everything else. So I got involved with the standard programs. We don't talk about them at the level of press, radio, and film. So I don't talk about them here. But you know what I'm talking about. There's 12 steps and all that stuff. And it you're not in one of those programs yourself. You probably have a relative or a friend who is, so. We're gonna have to try and race through a few here. Um, yeah, this is about your own family. Um, really lovely question. I've always thought on writing was a love letter to your wife as much uh -huh. as a memoir writing essay. Could you please say something about this bond and to what do you attribute its endurance? You've been married, what, 27 years? Well, she's, she's, she's great, a lot longer than that. I think we've been married, we've been married since 1971, so you know, 91, 2001. That's 38 years. And uh, we just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's terrific. Uh, when, when we started out, we were just a couple of kids. Uh, I was working in a gas station and she was working in a Dunkin' Donuts. And uh, later I taught school. Um, when Carrie sold the first book, we were living in a trailer. We didn't have a phone. And uh, the thing about Tabby, her name is Tabitha, but she was pre-witch. She was named before that, bewitch <laughs> show. She was actually named after a, a, a ship, the Tabitha Brown, that her father served in, on, in World War II. The thing is, she never ever said, give up this dream of being a writer. It was never a question. She always felt that that was what I was supposed to do. And so there was never any, uh, she's, she's just, I just love her like mad. That's all I can say. Does and she's a pretty good writer herself. She's a novelist She's published herself. seven books, seven novels. She's a terrific writer herself and a good poet. Does she, does your wife Tabitha ever get jealous of your characters, i.e. C. McGee? <laughs> I don't think so, no. Okay, um, should Dustin Pedroia play shortstop? Uh, no, Dustin Pedroia should not play shortstop for the Red Sox because the shortstop position is cursed for the Red Sox, and he should stay at second base. Do you think they'll get Roy Holiday? Yeah, Roy Holiday would make a terrific addition to the Red Sox staff, but... Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. Just as long as the f***ing Yankees don't get him. 
Now that we've got the important stuff out of the way, are you, will you please, are you planning to write anything appropriate for middle school age, such as Eyes of the Dragon? This is from Connie. She has uh, fifth grade students who don't know who you are. Yeah, well, I try as much as I can to write for everybody. And uh, I think a lot of times I love it when students meet my work outside the classroom, outside the lines, because I think that's where real learning takes place. But yeah. What would your advice be to an aspiring young writer who's experiencing writer's block from fear of failure? Well, you gotta write, that's all. There's no other way to it. You're gonna continue to fear failure until you just, well, failure what? I mean, if you're doing the, the job, we're all amateurs, nobody really knows what the hell we're doing here. And you go out and you do it and knock yourself out and have a great time. Remember, it's the playground. It's not anything to be afraid of. It's just people might not like it, but screw them. What are you afraid of, Stephen King? Anything? What am I afraid of? What are you scared of, Stephen King? Oh, man, I don't know. It's uh, everything, <laughs> really. Okay, let's see. I'm 44 years old now, and when I was in high school, you were my favorite author. How has getting older impacted your own values and priorities? Well, getting older sucks, kind of. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think it's, it's uh, impacted them a lot. I think that mostly I'm the same guy I, I ever was. I'm, I'm sure everybody feels the same way. Inside, you feel like you're about 23. All right, well, I'm indulging myself in my personal theory about you, that you do play on fear and death and fear of the unraveling of safety and the triumph of evil, at least for a little while. But I think your real sympathy is with the fragile, the vulnerable child, the beaten wife, the bullied, the scapegoated, and at their heart, your books are about love. Well, you know what? I think good wins over evil, but I think the price is usually real high. And maybe that's the way it's supposed to be.